Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, an improviser and psychotherapist in Naples, Florida. And you know, I love improv history. And today's guest is full of improv history because she was practically born at an improv theater. Her name is Cheryl Sloan. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. Hi. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad you're here today. Uh, you have such an interesting history in life. And um, let's go back to a little bit about, you know, you're, you're growing up in Second City and your mom was Joyce Sloan. And you also were really knew Bernie Salins very well as well. Yes, I did grow up there. Um, my mother went, started working at Second City when they moved um, from... Well, first they moved from Hyde Park to Chicago. They were upstairs and then they moved downstairs and they had much more space. And Bernie wanted the first two weeks sold out. And so he was looking for somebody to, in those days, we used to call it sell theater parties. Now it's a group sales department. But um, uh, a friend of my mom's said, go down there. This guy I know is looking for somebody to sell theater parties. You'd be great at it. I was a little baby. My dad had just left. She was home living with her parents. And um, Bernie said, okay, this is what I want. I want the first two weeks sold out. And so my mother got on the phone and for anybody who knew my mom or knows me, called every relative we have and every Jewish group in (laughs) Chicago in the suburbs. And sold out the first two weeks and actually sold the the story is she sold two opening nights. She she like messed up and sold too many groups and um, went to Sheldon and said, oh, no, what are we going to do? And Sheldon said, don't worry about it. We'll just do another show. We'll call one a preview. It's OK. So that's how she started. And then, of course, she stayed, um, you know, nobody actually thought she would actually do that because it's crazy to be able to sell two weeks every single night sold out but uh you know she had a baby to take care of so i think that she had some motivation well how did she get involved with them in the first place she um, was a single mother living with her parents with a baby well, so my mom had a history of uh in theater um we have a had a cousin who's since passed um, named jackie hilliard who was in a show called Borschkapades with uh, Mickey Katz and Joel Gray. And my mom actually left university to go travel with Borschkapades. And um, so had had this kind of love of theater always and had worked with other Chicago producers to produce some shows down at the Studebaker Theater and other places. And um, this case, she had been in the employment agency business for a while and then this came up and her friend Al Weissman who was a PR person in Chicago called her and said this is perfect for you you could do this and so so like she had a she had a network of people in theater in Chicago at the time um, but there wasn't much theater in Chicago when Second City opened it was mostly touring shows right so um, tell me a little bit more about your mom, because she was loved by so many people and um, she was your mom, too. So um, just tell me a little bit more about her, because she was very generous and kind and supportive is what I understand. Yeah, she was, you know, Second City was a small business. It wasn't what people think of it as now. It was a very small business that um worked hard to stay alive and counted on selling liquor really because <laughs> couldn't really make money from ticket sales. Um, and she had a deep respect for the art form and the people who were creating it. And that kind of followed through her whole career. And so um, she really treated it with, uh, like, with love and like a parent. And so I feel like a lot of people say, oh, thank you so much for sharing your mom. Thank you. It's like, that's always the joke. Thank you for sharing your mom. And my response is always, I didn't actually know I had a choice because (laughs) I grew up with 
Second City was part of my world. It was part of my life. Those people were part of my family and important. And, um, you know, if somebody called in the middle of the night and they were in trouble, we went to take care of them. Wow. Like that was just how it was. Um, and also, you know, now there's this like improv is everywhere and there's this workshops and training and this and that. At that time, it was this sort of, you know, ragtag group of people who decided that this is what they wanted to do as part of their career. And so a lot of them were directly out of college. This was, and um, frequently their parents were a little freaked out that they were decided to be an actor after they were whatever kind of major they were in college. And it went from um, divinity to, you know, English to chemistry, right? And all of a sudden they're going to be actors. And so uh, my mom identified with their journey and also treated that with respect. And in fact, there was always, I was just telling the story the other day that when actors' parents came to see them on stage, my mother always made a big deal of it. They always were comped. They were, she always went over and introduced herself because she knew that for those actors, this was the first time that they were validated in their choices by their family. So that was, you know, so I think all of that, um, you know, is the, those are just some examples of why everybody loved her. And she also, she was a good listener. Um, she told it like it was. She was frequently referred to as the funniest person in the building. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she was very straightforward with people. Well, that's beautiful. And so Bernie was big in her life throughout her career, right? And you knew Bernie. Well, yes. can you describe Bernie for me? <clears throat> Bernie was great. I mean, uh, I, you know, everybody has, um, I come to it from a different place. So I'm sure that you've had many different stories about all these people, but I was a little kid and this, this was my family. And Bernie, it was sort of like a mom and pop thing. And Bernie sat there with the checkbook and a cigar and, would, <laughs> you know, like yell about where, when did we get the check from, you know, Lansing or something and try to make everything work. Um, with respect to everybody who developed Second City, because, you know, the art form, Viola, Paul, Howard Alf, you know, that. These people all put their heart and soul in it, but Bernie stayed there. Bernie stayed in Chicago. My mom stayed in Chicago. So, and everybody else went on to build their careers, which was great. And they always had a home to come to, but Bernie's the one who stayed and developed the home and took care of the home. Oh, that's so, beautiful. you know, I think that that is, uh, really important. Absolutely. So um, did you meet Viola ever? When I was really little. Okay. Yeah. You had to be really little, but Paul, <laughs> yeah. you probably knew. Um, I guess Paul many times over. Paul would come and direct for a while and do his own thing. In fact, Bernie built the second city ETC for Paul. Wow. Because Paul wanted a home base in Chicago and he worked there for a while. Um, I have so much respect for Paul and his work. And also, like, those are the, the original Second City group. I mm. mean, watching those people improvise is probably one of the most special things in my life, you know? Yeah. Um, and I would go anywhere to see Sills and Company when, you know, especially when it was the original group. I mean, Avery and Dick Shaw and Valerie Harper and... Mina Cope, oh my God, you know, those, that whole group is. Um, and of course, Carol Sills contributed so much with design and lighting and uh, support. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, listen, when you're married to an artist, you're an artist. 
right? Like you have to be the support. Yeah. There's so much support that goes into putting on a show that you, when you're, when you work with artists, you just have to do what you have to do all the time. So I want to go back to some of your earliest memories. I don't know how far back you can go. Um, I can actually remember things from when I was maybe three and four years old. But some of your earliest memories of being a little girl at Second City, what are some of the images and memories that come up for you? Um, well, I remember the original theater, which was uh, a little bit north of the current theater. And, um, Lincoln and Wells, where where those streets come together, and uh, Eric Forsberg and I always say that we remember climbing the walls of the beer garden when we were little. <laughs> so you know, Eric Forsberg was born on the day Second City opened. I'm sorry, who was that? Eric Forsberg, Josephine Forsberg's oh, Josephine's son. son. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was. He has the same birthday as Second City. Um. But I, what I really remember is I remember J.J. Um, Berry on stage doing Mayor Daly. And I remember that whole group. Like, I don't remember um, Barbara Harris on stage at Second City and Alan Alda and that group. But I remember the J.J. Berry group in the early 60s. Uh, and I remember... I mean, I guess my memories are mostly of, you know, my mom working, right? And um, at the in the early days of Second City, the it was a very sort of college-aged audience. Mm -hmm. Very, uh, and so when students would go back to university in the fall, our numbers would drop off dramatically. Wow, okay. And so... It was actually my mom and Joe Forsberg who came up with the idea. My mom said, let's, our audience is in school, so let's go to the schools and perform there to make money in the winter when we have right. 13 people in a 300 seat theater. This was after we moved. And so, and Josephine put together the first touring company, and my mom started booking the touring company. And it was mostly Midwest universities because that's where people knew us at the time. And um, I, some of my earliest memories are actually in my basement at home, collating mailings for to send to the universities. <laughs> that Because that's what, like my whole family was in the basement. That's what we would do. We would put mailings together and help my mom do that. You know, my Aunt Nettie who lived with us um, with me growing up was the bookkeeper for Second City. So every uh -huh. night we would bring these little lunch bags with all the receipts and stuff from the night. <laughs> and Aunt Nettie would do the books at night. She had a full-time job with Matanky Real Estate. And at night she'd do Second City's books. You know, when I say it was a family business, I mean, it was a family business. Um, I have memories of, of course, going on the road at, with the touring company because every weekend, if my mom, my mom traveled with the touring company uh -huh. and if they were going on the weekends, I would go with because I mean, I, that was, I wasn't in school. So, um, my mom had bucket seats in her car and I would sit on that hard little case in the middle of the bucket seats surrounded by actors. And we just drove in cars like we, you know, right, right. whoever had a car got gas money. And that's how we went on the road. You know, no seatbelts, no. Right. <laughs> they were probably smoking a joint in the back seat. You right. know, <laughs> I was six, maybe. <laughs> so, um, so there's a lot of memories of uh, that kind of just, you know, make it work, make it work right. all the time, just making it work. And, you know, it was really all about the people, all about the actors and taking care of them and making things work. And not just the actors, I mean, the staff, like yeah. everybody pitched in, you know, the, the servers, um, everybody, it was like one big family.
It's beautiful. Now, I know your mom uh, discovered some people like Bellucci. Um, do you have memories of John at all or? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the story is that my mom called to book the touring company at College of DuPage. And the person who was the head of student activity said, oh, we don't need you to come out here. We got a kid who goes down and sees your shows. And then he comes back and does the whole show for us. And my mom's response was, really, I'd love to meet him. <laughs> and they did book the show. And when my mom was out there, she the guy took her down into this, like the bar and or the student activity center, you know, mm -hmm. the lounge, and um, introduced her to John. And she said, I hear you uh, do all of our material. And he was sort of, you know, being job, like didn't know what to say. And he said, she said, well, um, when you finish school, come down and audition. And he said, I'll come down. I'll come down this week. I'll come down right now. <laughs> and as my mom said to many, many, many people, she said, no, you finish school first. Mm. She always thought it was important that people get their degree. She and wow. the there were a couple reasons that I think it might have a little bit been because she was a mom, but, um, yeah. but also, um, she felt like you had to have a worldview and a reference level in order to improvise. Yeah. And so, and she actually advised a lot of people that if they really wanted to be a theater major, they should minor in history or English or something. Right. Because she didn't really feel like being a theater major prepared you to improvise. Although it gave you some of the skills, right. the acting skills, you also needed that reference level. Yes. Because Absolutely. Second City was very smart. And the audiences were very smart. And you had to be on the same level of your audiences. Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, anyway, so John actually was in this group with uh, Tino and Sana and uh, um, Steve Pashakis and they all came down and auditioned and she hired, she didn't hire Steve, but she hired Tino and John. And, um, you know, you knew immediately when John walked out on the stage, everybody looked at him. You just, he was, he was something different, yeah. you know, he, uh, even if he wasn't trying to pull focus, he could pull focus. But also he had a just this commitment to the work that everybody's committed to the work. Everybody loves the work, but there are some people who are obsessed with the work. And that was, John was, he was obsessed with the audience. He knew, he knew he could feel the audience. He knew what everybody was thinking. He knew when things worked and when they didn't, because he could feel the audience. Yeah. He could tell you that guy seeing it, M2 hates the show. Wow. You know? Wow. Like he just was that guy. Um, um the other story about John, of course, is when he started at Second City. Uh I was, I guess. 12, 11 or 12. Uh -huh. Anyway, when it came time for my bat mitzvah, um, my mom was thinking about a creative way to have a party for my friends. And she had John record an album as the godfather, inviting people to a mystery <laughs> bus ride for my bat mitzvah. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh, do you still have that recording? I do. That's priceless. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so funny. I yeah. do. Oh my gosh. I have the masters actually. Um, and then uh, it was a mystery bus ride and my mom was not so thrilled about being on a bus with a bunch of 13, 12 and 13 year olds for like an hour or two. So she hired Bill Murray to be the chaperone, which is ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> so billy got on with his guitar and hung out on the bus with all my friends oh that's wonderful oh my gosh
So. He's, another, he's another great person, isn't he? And I, I always think he's gotten cheated for his Oscar nominations because he's such a great actor. I've yes. just loved his films, really. Oh yeah, my he's gosh. a good actor. He's, oh, my yeah. gosh. So was he that much older than you all when he was serenading you on the bus? Well, I don't know. I mean, he seemed like he was, you know, he seemed like it. we were 12 years old. If he was out of college, he was an adult, a grown-up person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. What, what a wonderful treat. I just can't get over how fun that must have been. That's just. I mean, I didn't know, you know, they were, they were just touring company people. Like, I, oh. I didn't, you know. Billy also sold chestnuts in front of Treasure Island across the street from Second City. I mean, we, my mom would try to get everybody jobs and help them make extra money when she could, especially when they were in the touring company, um, because they weren't, you know, you don't, at those days, you weren't touring all the time. So, I mean, then it obviously, Second City grew up and, uh, Basically, we started with this one touring company who worked as much as possible, but, you know, not all year long. And then what would happen is my mom would um, double book them accidentally. And so then we'd have to, we'd start a new touring company. <laughs> so then we had two. And then it, where there was, you know, we would be able to book two. And so we would get more bookings and then it happened again. And then we had three. So, you know, oh, that's great. That's no, how I we grew. I've also read that she, I'm sorry. That's okay, you go. Um, that uh, she was really important to Gilda Radner. Gilda and my mom shared a birthday. Oh. So we heard from Gilda every year on my mom's birthday. Oh. Um, yeah, Gilda was a sweetheart. So, so my mom, um, in the so the touring company toured in the winter. In the summer, they didn't really tour. Um, and we didn't book a lot of groups in the summer because that's when everybody was back from college and Second City was sold out anyway. So uh, in the early 60s, 64, 65, um, my mom produced summer stock with a different um, producing partner in Winnipeg and Toronto. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of shows, you know, like, 13 weeks of summer stock. And um, being in Toronto, she got friendly with one of the critics there and with the owner of the theater. And she then booked Second City to go perform at Ed Mervish, um, in, who's you know now very famous. And his son, David, took over his business. And anyway, so Second City performed at the Royal Alexander Theater in Toronto. And then one of the critics there loved Second City and kept telling my mom, we need Second City here. We need Second City yeah, here. Yeah. So finally, after several years, uh, we decided to open in Toronto and Bernie and my mom went up there and they started looking for actors. And somebody said there was a production of Godspell going yeah. on yeah. with a good group of actors. And so they went to see Godspell and basically hired, uh, you know, at least 90% of the cast. And Gilda was in that Marty Short and Gilda. And Andrea, um, was Andrea in there? Andrea Martin? I yeah, I think so. <clears throat> um, and uh, Eugene Levy was in oh. there. You have to, we have the pictures. You can look at the pictures. But anyway, so she just hired them and that's the group that started Second City. And when Second City started, I mean, my mom was up there all the time. Bernie was up there. I was up there. And I mean, they were fabulous. And um, Dell was up there. Like we brought directors. It was just, it was really, we did trades where the company in Chicago would go to Toronto and the Ch Toronto company would come to Chicago and perform in Chicago. Um, you know, where there was, it, there was, it was very symbiotic. Like it was really like connected. Um, but we couldn't get a liquor license. That was a big problem. So we did all this great work, but we couldn't get people into the theater because we didn't have a liquor license. And flying back and forth to Canada, actually my mom met Andrew, who was 
doing some consulting for a theater in Chicago, the Ivanhoe a Andrew theater. Alexander. Yes. Yeah. And um, right, like we were about to close in Canada because we just couldn't stay open without uh -huh. the liquor license. And she knew that Andrew had a restaurant with the theater and she called him and put the, you know, got him introduced to Bernie and put the deal together for Second City to perform in the theater at his restaurant. And it became a dinner theater place where you go have dinner in the restaurant and then you go see the theater. And Andrew, um, you know, managed it. He, he was uh, really good at managing that and making it work. And he built that Second City up um, with, you know, he had producers and Sally was his producer and he and Sally really built a good business there. So, and then SCTV came out of that. Right, which is fantastic. So now during your years there, Second City, did you start taking classes or did you start teaching in, in Chicago, Second City? Um, I started, well, I actually like took classes when I was a little kid, Joe Forsberg and um, this oh, wow. guy, Mouse Finney, oh, wow. would do this improv for kids stuff. And so yeah. I took classes when I was a kid um, and I went, through later, I went through all the players workshop program, but really um, when we decided to put a, a school together to formalize it, because before that, Bernie would just let people teach at Second City, like Don DiPaolo would just do his classes there. And um, Joe had her own place, but would use Second City for some other stuff, Gelman. Mm -hmm. If Dell was teaching, he could do his classes there before he had his own space. Um, and we tried, we decided to formalize that program. And so Sheldon Patinkin, Martin DeMott, and I worked on putting together an actual curriculum and working with a group of teachers and starting the Second City Training Center. So that's when I really, um, that's when I, I really got into the whole educational aspect of improvisation. Um, I had been watching everybody, Joe, Del, Donnie, Michael, everybody teach for years uh -huh. and direct. But that's when we really started to formalize it. And actually, when I started teaching, I started teaching little kids uh -huh. um, because I was working with kids in some other arts forms art forms too, um, and hiring, and then I just, I, I was really more responsible for putting together the program than doing a lot of actual teaching. And then um, when we opened Second City Northwest, I put together a training center program there, and I know you've talked to Jay about that one. And it, it, you know, it was a way for the actors to make extra money by teaching, and it was also a way to develop a community for me in Rolling Meadows. It was really, a way to develop community and in fact all of my staff came out of that training program like they would start taking classes and then we would hire them to host and they would and of course they loved it because they got to hang around absolutely now jay right? had mentioned that his first teacher ever was stephen colbert right yeah wow. that was that was a great cast oh my god and then steve carell yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah, they all were in the cast out in Rolling Meadows. It was so you know, you had the touring companies so around the road for a while and then um at first then you the next step would be ETC and then the main stage. But then we opened the Rolling Meadows comp uh company and so then you could go to Rolling Meadows first before ETC. So then we had like three main stages. So because we were writing shows out there um and so it was kind of an exciting time because we're out in the northwest suburbs which is yeah. like yeah nobody nobody paid attention to us really like rick kogan god bless rick kogan who's a chicago critic was the only mainstream you know chicago paper critic who would travel out to rolling meadows and review the shows uh -huh. um, we had all the suburban critics who were wonderful and so supportive of us, but Rick was the the Chicago critic who would come out. And um, but really, like nobody was watching, so there was a a huge amount of freedom in 
in the creativity. And um, we, you know, got gave directors their start out there and gave actors their uh, start in terms of just being able to create their own material on a second city stage. And we did some really good work and some not so good work as improv goes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did yeah. a lot of really good work. Yeah, dare to fail. So um, we mentioned our mutual friend, Jay Suka, who attributes his so much of his improv to you and your support and your caring. And, and really, he does. And another person he loves, and you mentioned Martin Demat. Yeah, um, Marty was, yeah. He was a gentle, wonderful, and very straightforward and direct uh, teacher. But, you know, Marty was Joe's nephew. Joe Forsberg's nephew. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so he was another person who, like, we all grew up in improv. You know, Joe Forsberg used to teach in the bar at Second City. So after school, I would just sit there, you know, probably eating maraschino cherries or something awful for uh -huh. you um, and, <laughs> and watch Joe's classes. And so, and Joe, you know, learned from Viola. Right, is exactly. So there is a direct, and Marty learned from Viola and also from Joe. So it was really like games-based, very Viola-based improv. Yeah. And that's what I grew up with. And um, I think everybody who knew Marty and studied with Marty has Marty stories all the time. Um, I just actually told one last night. So he, he just comes up in your life because he was such a loving, good soul. Uh -huh. So um, we were, I was at dinner last night with some friends and I just told the story about how when you were on the road with Marty, if you were traveling with him, he had this thing where when you stopped at a toll booth, he, he played a game with himself that he wanted to make the person in the toll booth smile. And he like wouldn't drive through. He would all, it would all pretty much always work, but he would just be extra nice to people. Uh -huh. If he saw somebody who was unhappy, it was a challenge to him to oh. bring some happiness to their uh -huh. life. That is so beautiful. So, and his, you know, famous saying to everybody is, was you are pure potential. Oh, so beautiful. So everybody knows that about Marty, oh. but everybody has Marty stories. Oh. And you do as well. And you have somebody, we were talking about Michael Gelman a little bit. You said you knew Michael when he was a little boy. Well, <laughs> I don't know, little boy, but he was pretty young when he started. I can't imagine Michael was a little boy. <laughs> I don't know, little boy, but he was pretty young when he started working at Second City. Um, yeah, so, you know, I have... Um, I guess I just have different relationships with all these people. And also because I was always raised to see the good in oh. everybody. Yeah. You know, and especially the people at Second City. So awesome. Did you have you much know. of a relationship with Del Close? Well, yeah. But, you know, I was a child and, you know, Del had a thing about children. He did not love children. Right. Um, so like, I like WC Fields. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, Del was actually kind of scary to me when I was a child um, for a lot of reasons. Um, mostly because when I was growing up, it, those were his really big using years. Uh -huh. And he was scary to a lot of people, um, you know. But I recognized his genius. Uh, he, I also recognized his explosiveness. Right. Um, but as I got older, I think it was when I got out of college that, that I actually started talking to him, like having conversation with him and, and then learned a lot more about him. And then, you know, as he sobered up, he became a different person. Right. And I so fortunate to have lived through both sides of Dell, but to have been able to see him on stage and see him, you know, uh, act in shows in Chicago. Yes. I will say this about Dell, though, though, throughout the whole, throughout his tough times and good times. And, you know, Dell used to 
call my mom and say, well, I think you should call the ambulance now. I've just swallowed an entire bottle of whatever it was. And my mom would call the ambulance and they would take him to the hospital and he would be in the hospital for a few days and he'd say, I can't get anything done here. Why not? (laughs) Well, I don't have a typewriter. I can't write, you know. And so my mom would send over a typewriter and she'd send somebody from Second City over there with a typewriter. And by the time they got to the hospital, Dell wasn't there anymore. Right. <laughs> he'd say, well, I couldn't stay in that place anymore. It's too noisy in there. You know? yeah. And then when, while he wasn't in his apartment, we'd send people over to clean it because it was horrible. Um, but, you know, he would do stuff like that all the time. Or, you know, I was there one time when he was swallowing fire and we had to call the paramedics because he burnt his whole arm and like they you know Mm -hmm. and people would sometimes he couldn't teach he would have a class and he'd just get in there and just be too messed up and he couldn't teach and we'd have to go in and help with that but then he would get on stage especially when Severin was around Uh uh-huh and Dahl and Severin would get on stage and they played this thing they called the game. And they were the only ones who knew the rules to the game. And and like watching him on stage with Severin was like, it was a kind of brilliance that um, you just don't see very often. Yeah. You know, so there was always like a reason to take care of Dahl. Mm-hmm. Right, because there was this brilliance. He had this genuine brilliance that um, that you wanted to to keep. You wanted it to stay, and and it did. And he did sober up, and then we got to see more and more of that over and over again. So, cool. so it's a good, you know, it's a good story with some really hard times absolutely you know uh and i'm sure that people have a lot i have some really harsh stories about that i mean i do from second city you know he said horrible things to people but there you go there you go so um i i actually met chris farley towards his end and um in a uh, circumstance i can't divulge but anyway i when he walked into the room there was this this energy already, you know, this is this energy in the room, just his presence was so incredible. And I imagine a lot of the people you had the experience of being around, including your mom, had this presence about them. And it's kind of an energy you can't really describe. Does that make sense at all? Or Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yes, so, Chris did have that. Amazing. And so sad. Um, so on to lighter things. Uh, maybe. <laughs> what do you think about all the improv going on today? Do you have thoughts about that? or I love that it's going on. I love it. I love the people. I think improv is like, is, uh, you know, Viola started working with kids as part of the WPA. And um, I think the more improv there is, you know, the more we can help people in the world live better lives. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about, really. Um, and as long as it's being done with that in mind, I think it's great. I don't want to watch all of it. Okay? <laughs> you but you know? did tell me you're a great audience member. So. I am a great audience. And I love, you know, I, but I also, um, I'm a great audience for my friends and for people who are really good at theatrical improv. You know, there's and there's a but there's a huge place for improv in business, in therapy, in all walks of life. And I believe in it and I believe it the more the merrier. Um, But I don't want to watch everybody fail on stage. Right. I'll leave that to the improv teachers. (laughs) (laughs) So. Um, um uh, listen let's move on to what what you started doing around 20 years ago or unless you feel like you'd like to take a break would you like to take a short pause no um, i'm fine great I'm okay good. wonderful let's I have a little more about... tea in my cup so i can talk a little more great. okay because uh, you're doing 
some really cool stuff today. So tell me how you got into it and what you're doing. Um, okay, so I opened G Boutique, uh, well, probably about 25 or 26 years ago now. Um, it was a conversation with girlfriends. Um, there were very few places in the country where you could go buy a vibrator as a woman and feel comfortable. Sex toys were mostly sold in stores that were designed for men to come into and maybe had some booths in the back. Um, and that was like an industry thing too. Like sex toys weren't actually designed for a woman purchaser. They were designed for men to purchase. It's a different thing. Uh, so we decided that we wanted a place to go that we could feel comfortable in. And being in the Midwest, we also decided that we needed to create that in a softer space. So we decided to combine like good lingerie with sex toys. And when, so the connotation was that if you were gonna go buy sort of like sexy lingerie, that you could go into the sexy store and buy vibrators and, but nobody really wanted to go in there. So my mom also, by the way, slept in a penwar set every night. So I grew up thinking that- <laughs> Oh, beautiful. Right, like yeah. I thought like people want to sleep looking like Zsa, Zsa Gabor, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a penwar set. <laughs> so, um, and so, and I really kind of thought that when you were a kid, it was okay to sleep in a t-shirt if you wanted to, but that when you grew up, you wore beautiful lingerie. Right, and, right. And that was sexy. And and so we kind of opened the store to like change the the stigma of sex toys and also change the stigma of sexy. Like you can wear good quality lingerie and it is sexy. And you don't have to wear poor quality. Right. And you don't have to be uncomfortable to be sexy. A lot of women would say, well, you know, I got all this stuff for my wedding, but it's so uncomfortable. And, I, you know, I don't, I know it's sexy, but I don't feel sexy in it. So our whole thing was, you, if you feel sexy, you're going to look sexy. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's about who you are as a person and what makes you feel sexy. And then maybe it's okay to put on like the, what, you know, something you got for your wedding because you've learned how to how to feel sexy how you feel so but anyway so we sold high-end lingerie and we sold sex toys and we went like all about changing the conversation and um before we opened we met with some doctors who are friends of mine some gynecologists and uh -huh. it really became more about women's sexual health and wellness yeah that's terrific what is that? Uh, Whoops. I'm so sorry. I don't know where that came from. Well, they were moving furniture above me. Maybe that's what you heard. No, I, I heard like a YouTube channel that just popped up actually oh. on my computer. So I just turned it off and now we're back. So you anyway, did a lot um, of great research, a wonderful research. So we did, so we worked with doctors from the very start and um it, it all really became about sexual health and wellness and that conversation it becomes about pleasure and um about the store became about making people comfortable with that conversation yeah. so it was very like it was all pink and very boudoir looking and um quickly we were able to turn that conversation to wellness and help a lot of women. And, you know, we were successful for a long time. Um, we had women of all ages in the store. Uh, and I think, I think we grew and society grew and the conversation has become more open. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more people talking about about sex from the um, agenda of healthy wellness, wellness, and also there's a lot more um, 
acceptance of the fact, the reality of we're staying healthier longer in our lives, right? We're living healthier lives as we get older. So therefore, there are sexual health and wellness issues that that come up and, and need to be addressed, which is like people need lube. Right. Like, right, right, right. And so so we should talk about lube and what's good and bad and we should have access to good lube. Right. We shouldn't just go in and buy a lube that is sticky and gummy and could maybe cause some sort of yeast infection or UTI right. because it's the only thing in the drugstore. That's not OK. You know, um, we should have access to, to quality. Like yeah. we buy, we look for quality and everything else. We don't want to, you know, we don't want like uh, parabens in any plastic that we buy in our water bottles and stuff, but we don't care about our sex toys. Well, of course we do care. We do care, right? So we should know, be educated about how to choose a quality sex toy. Um, we wouldn't put food in our bodies that isn't, you know, healthy for us, right? right? We're all about buying quality, but yet we'll put anything in our vaginas? Really? Why would we do that? No, right, right. we want to know what, where's the quality lube? What is it? What are the ingredients that make it quality? What works best for us and how do we use it? So now I work, so we closed the store several years ago. Now I um, do marketing and branding for Uber Lube. Which is, is awesome. Is- Uber Lube is a, uh, high, is a premium quality silicone lubricant. And it is silicone and vitamin E. It's not sticky. It is not smelly. It has really no taste. Um, and it's great as for, it's great for anybody because it's great for massage. It's great for foreplay. It also, by the way, is a great hair product. So, <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah, you can put it in your hair and it like tames your frizzies and puts a shine on your hair. So oh my gosh. there's that, but um, but it's really a great lube. And uh, what it does is it, it stays on the surface of your skin, so it doesn't absorb. So it stays slippery for a lot longer. So that's very helpful, especially as we get older. So the drier you are, the better it is and the more you need lube and then eventually it dissipates in the air it's formulated to really be body friendly and to enhance sex but not get in the way of it uh-huh. so we like to say like we want to take a back seat we want you to be the focus and we want to be in the back seat you know and make your life better oh my god it's so awesome so you were telling me before we started today that you spend most of your time on the phone talking about sex. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, I spend time, I, mean, I, I actually spend most of my time at medical trade shows talking about sex. Oh, okay. All right. Um, and talking to doctors because we rely on doctors to market our product. Um, but you so, do, do you help people that are having issues? Do you consult? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. people call me all the time. I actually do still coach women. So, and I do that a lot of that on the phone or by Zoom, um, although I do do it in person, too. I still teach. I still lecture. Oh, where do you uh, do that? Um, I do workshops, private workshops for people all around the Chicago area. I'm speaking, actually um in march at a sexologist conference in dc um and that's fantastic you know the old saying you know sex is dirty and bad you just save it for your marriage and the idea that we've been liberated to use that phrase to um enjoy sex and even as older women which i am to be able to enjoy sex and in my practice, sometimes I'll ask people, you know, that are over 60, well, you know, um, how many times a week, are, you know, that are with a partner, how many times a week are you having sex? They go, oh, I stopped that long ago. And I know. That's so sad because you can still enjoy it no matter what your age. Um, it's nice to be able to have a hit of estrogen now and then, but some of us lost that opportunity. 
So I, I think it's a wonderful mission you're on. I just love it. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think it's all about, it starts with the conversation, right? Why can't we talk about it? Like, you get to choose whether you want to have sex or not. You get to choose how you define pleasure in your life. But, you know, sex is kind of, that oxytocin from sex is right. can sometimes be like a drug. Like if you don't have it for a long time, you think it's fine to not have it and live without it. But then if you start having it, whether it's self-pleasure or whether it's with a partner, you realize that it, it life can be really good with it. Like orgasms are good. Orgasms are fun. <laughs> orgasms feel good. And um, they, they, uh, Create, you know, they release hormones in your body that are actually very, very healthy for you. Absolutely. It's a good way to go through life. So, um, and, and I think a lot of women give that up because it becomes painful. Um, and they just don't know how to navigate that space after a certain amount of time. Or maybe they don't, you know, they're not really getting the pleasure that they want. Right, exactly. So to help women navigate that space and and have pleasure throughout their life. And, you know, really, there's some women who've never really experienced an orgasm. And they might be, you know, past those baby-making years and they still haven't experienced. So then they're just like, you know, why should like this isn't fun right so if if uh we can help a little bit you know if they're working with a therapist or you know a doctor and good loop can help them get to that pleasure that place of pleasure then that's really good we're happy it's beautiful it's not just good it's excellent i really uh <laughs> I have a new resource to give my my clients now. I just yeah yeah, we exist to make people happy. So, oh, that's a wonderful motto. We exist to make people happy. Well, listen, Cheryl Sloan, what a delight being able to meet you. Uh, this will be an audio podcast, of course, but you're just awesome, and I'm so glad that we found some time to speak together about your life and your current life your past lives <laughs> and your current lives and um i hope i get to meet you in person someday you yes. know that would be awesome yeah well i'll be in the audience yes That's what i do <laughs> i'll remember that <laughs> i'll be either i'll be speaking about lube or i'll be in the audience watching theater because i'm i love to go to theater that's wonderful. Well, you're a lovely woman, and thank you so much for your contribution to improv and your ongoing contribution to helping women feel happy in their sex lives. Just beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.